What's the reality about power? What's true about guilt and innocence? Um, what, what's really true about justice and about injustice? What's really true about beauty? What, what, really, what, what really is beautiful and what is ugly? And I ask those questions that seem so basic, so fundamental, because on Good Friday, for those with eyes to see, almost nothing is as it seems. That is, on Good Friday, God in Christ unveils to us, for us, before us, the truth. He unveils to us the reality. The reality of all of these very fundamental questions. And what we discover on Good Friday, when we have eyes to see, that is, is that the reality of all of these very basic, very fundamental questions, the realities are actually turn out to be nothing like they seem to us. Nothing like we assumed. Jesus is the truth. And everything else, that means, everything else is a masquerade. Everything else is a deception. Everything else is a lie. And we see that through the entirety of Jesus' life. But on Good Friday, there comes this concentrated, almost a, an explosion of this profound reality that Jesus is truth and everything else is a masquerade. So this morning, we're going to jump right into the story of Good Friday. Um, and I want to remind you again of kind of... Um, an epiphany, at least I think it was the epiphany that I had at the beginning of this series when we started doing it, and maybe it doesn't sound so profound to you, but it certainly felt profound to me. Um, and basically, I felt prompted in this study series to just tell the story. That is, um, that is to as we approach this, this study series through the Gospel of Mark, uh, through Holy Week, um, I had this realization that um, while for me, as a communicator, I spend a lot of time studying the text, yes, but then thinking about, okay, what is my analysis of the text, and what kind of, what kind of truths or perspective can I mine out of this text? And suddenly, I had this realization that, you know, and the context here was, was the Gospel of Mark, but, but for Mark, apparently, it was enough just to tell the story. <laughs> so I had this realization that, that if it's if it's sufficient for the spirit-inspired writer of the text to tell the story and leave it at that and let the story, I think, the implication is, let the story have its work in us, right? If that's enough for Mark in this case, and indeed most of the spirit-inspired biblical authors, um, if it's good enough for Mark, then, then why wouldn't it be good enough for us? And so with that sort of thought, I would call it an epiphany, um, what I'm proceeding to do is, is do my best to tell the story. Now, that's not quite as simple as it sounds because this is an ancient story. It comes, from, it comes from a place that is far removed from us both geographically and in time. And so it takes us some work, really, to get back into the story so that we can simply hear the story. And so I want to invite you again, and in particular today, as we look at this particular day of Holy Week, I want to invite you, ironically, I think maybe, to listen by filtering out, right? So in other words, in order, I think for us to really hear this story, we almost are required to consciously filter some things out. And there's really two categories that I want to ask you to filter out as we try to do our best to listen to Mark tell the story of Good Friday. And one thing I want to ask you to filter out um, is a basket full of elements of Good Friday that come to us from other gospel writers. In this case, um, Matthew, Luke, and John. In other words, typically my guess is for most of us, and certainly if you, if you grew up in church, my guess is that when you think about Good Friday, you're like me, what we sort of impulsively do is when we think of Good Friday, what we're actually doing is we're synthesizing 
um, a basket full of elements of the day that come from a blend of, of the gospel writers from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we sort of put all of that together and come up with our imagination of Good Friday. Um, certainly, uh, well, at least for me, anytime I've seen that Good Friday portrayed in film, what you ultimately see um, is a single portrayal of Good Friday that is actually a synthesis of material that comes from, well, I guess all four um, biblical authors. An example would be, uh, for many of us, we're familiar um, with the fact that there are seven final words of Jesus from the cross. Um, well, um, those seven words actually come from synthesizing reports that we receive from a variety of, of biblical authors. Uh, for many of us, when we, think about, when we think about, well, I guess in this case, Holy Thursday, um, the reason we call it Holy Thursday, Maundy Thursday, is, is it's when Jesus gives a new commandment, I give you to love one another. Well, that's only found in John's report of Holy Week, in this case, uh, Maundy Thursday. Uh, Mark doesn't have that for us, for example. So, so I know it might sound a little bit clinical, but, but I'm, what I, what, all of this is in the effort to hear Mark, right? Let, 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 let's try to hear his story. So, so try to filter out elements from, from other reports about Good Friday, and, and I'll show you a couple of points where I think that makes a difference in how we hear Mark. Um, and then secondly, I want to ask you to do your best to filter out... Um, what I'm going to call uh, an inherited theological meaning of the death of Christ. In other words, I think for, for most all of us, when we think about the crucifixion of Christ and we think about what does this mean, most of us approach that question, and indeed we approach the moment of crucifixion with an idea about what this means, theologically speaking. Um, and, and so I, I want to ask you to suspend that uh, presumed, I'm going to call it that if I can, suspend that presumed theological meaning um, and just hold that aside just, just for the next few moments. And again, so that we can do our best to hear Mark. And just to, for me to take another step into that territory and be a little more candid uh, about it. My guess is that for most of us, if you've grown up in church and you've grown up singing about the crucifixion and talking about the crucifixion and, and all of that. My guess is that most of us come to this moment, the cross, and with regard to the question of the theological meaning of the cross, we would answer that question by by basically delineating um, the ideology of substitutionary sacrifice. The meaning of the cross is that Jesus died in my place on my behalf so that I wouldn't have to die uh, because of the guilt of my sin. And because Jesus suffered as a substitutionary sacrifice in my place, God can now forgive my sin because I've put, you know, that whole, that whole, that whole deal. I want to ask you to, to suspend that to the side just for a moment. Um, and I'm going to offer some reflection after we go through the story, um, but I want to tell you from the beginning that if you're looking for that theme in Mark's story, you won't find it. It's not there. And the reason I point that out is because, because if we don't do the work of suspending that presumed understanding of the meaning of the cross, then we actually can't hear the story Mark is telling. Mark is telling a very different story about the cross the crucifixion, and we'll get there in just a moment. So I hope with that you're poised and ready to jump in to this story. And let me say one more thing before we jump in. Um, we've been kicking this idea around and, and hope it works. Um, and so after the sermon this morning, we're going to have a time of question and answer. So as we're studying today, as you, if you have questions, just make a mental note or maybe jot it down. And at the end of the sermon, if you have a question that you'd like me to at least try to respond to, um, we're going to have a chance and I'm going to invite you to post it in the Facebook feed. And we've got folks here uh, who are going to relay the question to me and I'll do my best to give an answer. Uh, so we're calling it Q&A. Maybe we should call it Q&R. I'm not sure that I'll be able to answer every question, but I am sure that I'll be able to give a response. So we're going to have Q&R. How about that? Okay. So uh, here we go, Mark chapter 15, verse 1. 
As soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. They bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Now, this is Pilate is the local ruler on behalf of Rome in Jerusalem. Uh, Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you say so. Then the chief priests accused him of many things. Pilate asked him again, have you no answer? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further reply so that Pilate was amazed. Okay, so here we have our first scene, according to the way that we're measuring time, our first scene of Good Friday. This is early in the morning on that Friday. And so remember, at this point already, Jesus has already been interrogated by the Jewish council, uh, and they're now bringing him to Pilate. But at the end of that interrogation by the Jewish council, Jesus has already suffered um, not only mocking and verbal abuse, but he's experienced already physical abuse. The, the temple guards, it says in the earlier, in chapter 14, the temple guards have already um, beaten Jesus. And so um, we need to realize that there's a little bit of a context here um, as we approach this story. So, um, and I said that to say, we should probably, I think, we should probably hear a little bit of a mocking tone in Pilate's question, Right? So here's Jesus. He is, after all, a peasant from Galilee. And not only that, he's been up all night interrogated by the Jewish council. And not only that, he's now been beaten by them, spat upon by them. So he's already suffered brutally. And here he is now standing in that condition, standing before Pilate. And so maybe, maybe there's a little bit of tone in Pilate's question. Look at you. You look like a beaten up bum. Are you the king of the Jews? Right? So there's already that kind of scornful element. And then, in keeping with that, we might also hear a little bit of retort in Jesus' answer, maybe. You say so. So maybe Jesus is right back at Pilate with the notion that um, Pilate might be himself a little bit too big for his britches. In other words, just as Pilate's question contains a sense of ironic disbelief in the same way. Maybe Jesus' answer contains a similar um, discount or undercutting of Pilate's self-assurance. So, and then there's this line where, where Mark says that Pilate was amazed. And for, again, for us, from a historical context, we might have to do a little work to get there. Um, and it's true in our culture as well, but certainly in, in that culture, in that time and place, um, for someone to refuse to answer a person in authority is itself an act of defiance against that person in authority, right? And so for Jesus to refuse to answer Pilate's question after giving the initial answer, then for Jesus to refuse any longer to answer any more questions, that is in itself to defy Pilate's authority. Verse 6. Now, at the festival, he used to release a prisoner for them, anyone for whom they asked. Now, a man called Barabbas was in prison with the rebels who had committed murder during the insurrection. So the crowd came and began to ask Pilate to do for them according to his custom. Then he answered them, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he realized that it was out of jealousy that the chief priest had handed him over. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release Barabbas for them instead. So Pilate spoke to him again. Then what do you wish me to do with the man you call the king of the Jews? They shouted back, crucify him. And Pilate asked them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released Barabbas for them. And after flogging Jesus, he handed him over to be crucified. All right. So Barabbas and the crowd. There's a lot going on in this particular vignette of Good Friday. During this course of this scene that takes a couple of paragraphs for Mark to narrate it to us, Pilate, I'm mean, sorry, Barabbas uh, goes from death row to free at last, right? It's a big moment for Barabbas. 
Also, in this couple of paragraphs here that Mark gives us, the crowd shifts from apparently being in support of Jesus all the way to shouts of crucify him. So how do we make sense? How do we make sense of this? Well, once again, a little bit of historical context, I think, helps. These events that we're reading, that we're studying, these events occurred around 33 AD. Now, we know that violent revolt against Rome, against the Roman occupation, broke out in Jerusalem um, in 66 AD. So, roughly 30 years after these events. And here, Mark mentions a recent um, violent insurrection against Rome that Barabbas had been a part of. Barabbas had been a part of a violent, murderous insurrection against the Roman occupation. So here's the thing. You put those two facts together. And what we can know and be confident of is that there were many, many Jewish people who are in vigorous support of the ideology of violent um, revolt against Pilate, against Caesar, against the Roman occupation. There were many who held that sympathy, and Barabbas is among them. Um, they are generally called the Zealots, uh, and we know that there were some who were among the Zealots party who were close to Jesus throughout his ministry. And in addition, with the war that we know broke out in 66 AD, so just 33 years later, this ideology um, of the Zealots, of violent revolt against Rome, this would become such a groundswell, a large enough groundswell, so that there would be enough people to actually actively take up arms and revolt violently against Rome. And so Barabbas was a revolutionary. He wants to overturn the rule of Rome over the people. Barabbas wants to save Israel. And he wants to do it in a particular way. And guess what? As we already know from the story, Jesus too is a revolutionary. He too wants to free people from tyranny. That's why he rode in on Sunday on a donkey to mock Pilate's military parade. And that's why he symbolically destroyed the temple on Monday with that scene. My house should be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. That's Monday of this very week. Jesus, too, is a revolutionary. So what's the difference? What's the difference between Barabbas and Jesus? Well, clearly, Barabbas is a violent revolutionary. He wants freedom through killing. Jesus is a nonviolent revolutionary. He wants freedom through laying down his life. So, what about the crowd? Well, Mark doesn't tell us precisely why the crowd chose Barabbas for release and Jesus for crucifixion. He only says that the, that the chief priests provoked the crowd. Um, so just two quick observations that really play off of the previous observation. Um, I, I want to suggest that this, this shift, even as I maybe have suggested, I want to say that this shift in the crowd, this doesn't necessarily mean that it's the same crowd that has supported Jesus earlier in the week during his temple conversations and his temple um, actions. It could easily be a different crowd. I mean, after all, this scene is happening in Pilate's um, uh, palace grounds, and so uh, someone had to let these people in. So it could be that these are selected people who are known to be already sympathetic to uh, the Jewish aristocracy. That's a possibility. Uh, second, though, um, let's just suppose that at least some of these folks in this particular crowd did change their mind about Jesus from support of Jesus to shouts of, of crucifixion for him. What would we make of this if there were, in fact, some in the crowd who changed their mind so um, uh, eagerly, easily, let's say? Well, again, listen to the story. These people are given a choice 
between two young Jewish men, both of whom want Israel to be free. And both of them are subverting Roman domination. But there's one difference between them, at least one. One is a violent revolutionary. The other preaches, turn the other cheek, love your enemies, all that. He is nonviolent. And who did the people choose for release? Why were they so eagerly, why were they so easily provoked against Jesus by the chief priests and in favor of Barabbas? Well, again, I think we're on solid ground when we lean into the historical reality that we have enough facts to reconstruct. And that is because the crowd, in essence, was buying what Barabbas is selling. Barabbas is selling the violent overthrow of Rome as righteous and necessary, as a righteous cause and a necessary cause. And that is what the crowd is supporting in their choice of Barabbas. And again, we know we're on solid ground here because, A, there had been a recent violent insurrection that Barabbas had been a part of, and, B, there would be another large-scale violent insurrection against Rome just 33 years or so on from the moment that we're reading. Verse 16. Then the soldiers led him into the courtyard of the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole court, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and after twisting some thorns into a crown, they put it on him, and they began saluting him, Hail, King of the Jews! They struck his head with a reed, spat on him, and knelt down in homage to him. After mocking him, uh, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. Now, Jesus has just been given the death penalty, death by crucifixion. He's been flogged by Pilate's soldiers, and now they're conducting what we see here in fair, pretty fair amount of detail. They're conducting a mocking coronation ceremony, essentially. It's all performed as an insult to humiliate Jesus. Um, and at each step along the way in this mocking coronation ceremony, these soldiers, don't you know, are simultaneously pronouncing their own power and legitimacy um, as they are heaping scorn and insult upon Jesus. And so it's a two-part equation here. Um, and remember, one of the primary motives for executing insurgents by crucifixion was humiliation. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. But historians tell us that Rome reserved crucifixion for those who sought to, in some way, challenge Rome, challenge the Roman order. If you challenge the system, this is what happens to you. This is what you are worth. And so humiliation is part and parcel of the Roman agenda for crucifixion. And so we see elements of that agenda on the part of the Roman soldiers in this mocking coronation ceremony. Verse 21, they compelled a passerby who was coming in from the country to carry the cross. It was Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now, we know from history that typically the person who was sentenced to die by crucifixion had to carry their own crossbeam to the place of crucifixion. But here in this case, we get this interesting uh, moment that Mark reports to us that in this case, the soldiers had someone else carry Jesus' crossbeam at least, at least part of the way. Presumably, this was not an act of kindness on their part, but probably an indication that Jesus was already too weak to carry it himself. It's been a long night for him and already a brutal morning. Um, secondly, I would say it is, I think, of note that as Mark is writing this, he tells his readers exactly who it was by name who carried the crossbeam of Jesus. We know that it was Simon of Cyrene. Oh, you know Simon. He is the father of Alexander and Rufus, as if to say, um, if you have any questions about my story, go ask them, you know. Uh, so that's a really an interesting historical point. 
All right, moving on, verse 22. Then they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he didn't take it. And they crucified him and divided his clothes among them, casting lots to decide what each should take. It was nine o'clock in the morning when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him, they crucified two bandits, one on his right hand, uh, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by derided him, shaking their heads and saying, aha, you who would destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests along with the scribes, were also mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from the cross now so that we may see and believe. Mm, interesting. Those who were crucified with him also taunted him. Um, we're going to come back to this, but I just want to point this out as we think about this section of Mark's report. Um, Notice here that Mark uses only four words to describe the actual moment of crucifixion. Four words, and they crucified him. Um, and we can say that Mark didn't need to use any more words than that. His original audience would have been all too familiar with Roman crucifixion. They did it all the time. Thousands and thousands were killed, uh, even in the region of Israel, certainly more throughout the entire Roman Empire. So his audience would have been terribly familiar with crucifixion. But maybe today we need a little bit of historical context. Um, in an overarching sense, for the Roman Empire, crucifixion was a form of capital punishment. It was a form of the death penalty, crucifixion. Um, but secondly, it's important to know that for the Romans, crucifixion was reserved for a special category of violators. Um, crucifixion was reserved for those who challenged the system, for those who, who, who pushed back, who challenged the way of Rome, what they called the Pax Romana, the peace, the peace of Rome. Crucifixion was reserved for those who violated the law and order of the Roman Empire, the Roman way. These would be people like insurrectionists, like, like Barabbas, um, even maybe uh, slaves who, ex who refused to accept their place in the Roman society system. O the point is, ordinary criminals were not crucified by the Romans. It was a special category of criminals who were executed by crucifixion. Uh, thirdly, as a form of, let's just call it what it is, as a form of imperial terrorism, crucifixion was always as public as possible. That was part of its purpose. Um, this is what happens to those who try to challenge Rome, our Roman way, our system, our society. Um, uh, so so, so the, the, it being public was a key element, and the humiliation element was key in crucifixion. Um, fourthly, just by way of reminder, uh, execution by crucifixion didn't stop at death. Typically, the victims of crucifixion were left hanging on their cross for quite some time, and often even low enough to the ground so that not only the carrion birds, but also the dogs could eat the flesh of the victims of crucifixion um, until there was nothing left to bury. Um, there's only, in the region of Israel, there's archaeological evidence for only one person who was buried after crucifixion. And the supposition is that all others, that for all other victims of crucifixion, there was actually nothing left to have been buried. So that's the little context about crucifixion. And Mark gives us just four words to point to it. And we'll talk, come back to that in just a moment. Um, second thing I want to point out is this, this, this notice of the crime for which Jesus was executed. It was customary for Rome to place a board on the vertical beam 
of the cross, stating the crime for which the victim had received the death penalty. Um, And in Jesus' case, the board said, king of the Jews. That was Jesus' crime. Now, from Pilate's viewpoint, um, this is, well, I think we could say it's twofold. From Pilate's viewpoint, this is, on the one hand, treason against Caesar uh, for him to claim to be king of the Jews and certainly intended to be mockery against Jesus. This is your king, right? That kind of, that kind of thing. Um, from the viewpoint of the religious leaders, certainly this pronouncement of Jesus' crime uh, is insulting to them as well because Pilate is saying to them, this is your king, a humiliated, crucified, failed loser. This is your king. But from Mark's viewpoint, this, of course, is the ultimate irony. Jesus really is the king of the Jews. And not only the king of the Jews, Jesus is the king of the whole world. Even king of Pilate. Jesus is even king of Caesar. So there's a deep irony here in the midst of this story. Um, the next thing, it, it, Mark tells us that Jesus was crucified between two bandits. The word is translated here. This is the um, New Revised Standard Version. It's translated bandits. Um, I just want to point out, it's, again, it's worth noting, the Greek word used here by Mark is a word that's commonly used to denote insurrectionists against Rome. Um, and I've hinted at this already, but there is, there is some scholarly evidence for this. Um, the Greek word here is used elsewhere outside the New Testament. Um, it's used to describe what, what we might call freedom fighters or, or even terrorists. Um, and some have said the difference between a freedom fighter and a terrorist is what perspective you take upon their cause, right? Um, so the point is that from the point of view of both the religious aristocracy and from the point of view of that of Rome, Jesus was executed as a material threat to their status quo. That's what's going on here. That's the story that Mark is telling. And then finally from this scene, I just want to point out um, what we get from Mark is what I'm calling unanimous mockery. Notice that so far in this scene, everyone in the scene, despite all their differences of angle, everyone shares one thing in common, and that is that they are all mocking and insulting Jesus. The crowd, the religious leaders, and the two bandits. Now, again, as I mentioned before, it's Luke who gives us the vignette of one of those between whom Jesus is crucified, eventually warming toward Jesus. And we have that beautiful line from Jesus, today you'll be with me in paradise. Luke gives us that. But there is no such warm moment in Mark's story. It is unanimous, scathing, scorning, mockery against Jesus from all parties. Verse 33. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. This is one of these times where we're so grateful for Mark, marking time for us as he does so well in his entire story of Holy Week, certainly on on Good Friday. What time was Jesus crucified? Mark tells us 9 a.m. Now it's noon. Think about it. Jesus has been on the cross for three hours. And he tells us now that darkness comes over the whole land and remains for three hours. That is from noon until 3 p.m. Now, whether Mark means this as literal darkness or as symbolism, either way, I think it's safe to say, the point seems to be the symbolic meaning of darkness. Mark is, of course, well acquainted with how the ancient prophets used the imagery of darkness throughout their writings. And really, as a common thread, 
the image of darkness in the writings of the Jewish prophets. Um, let's just say it's used as a symbol for grief or judgment or both. Um, and here, I think, we can understand both. A conveyance of grief and judgment. It is as if the cosmos itself is grieving over this terrible crime being committed by the religious leaders and the Roman Empire. And with that, God himself stands in judgment over those who perpetrated this crime. As Paul says, they crucified the Lord of glory. And that's what we're witnessing here. Verse 34. At three o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they said, listen, he's calling for Elijah. They've misunderstood. Uh, and someone ran, filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a stick and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Then Jesus gave a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was God's son. Mm. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a quote from the first line of Psalm 22, Jesus speaking here in Aramaic. Um, a quote from Psalm 22, and of course those standing around misunderstand uh, the language. They think that he's calling out for Elijah, but Jesus is quoting the first line of Psalm 22, and, and we'll come back and talk about this later. But if you're familiar with Psalm 22, you know that it does begin with these words that are called the cry of dereliction, this sense of abandonment, feeling abandoned by everyone up to and including God himself. And yet, as you go all the way down through Psalm 22, what you realize is that the psalmist then, and we suspect even uh, Christ himself, now on this day in 33 AD, um, understands that ultimately his father did not forsake him and never would forsake him. I want to skip ahead um, in this report where Mark gives us these final moments. And I want to just point out these two events that happened at the moment of Jesus' death. I want us to think carefully about this curtain and this centurion. And I hope that by now we've studied Mark enough, closely enough, um, to realize that when Mark does this sort of thing, he wants us to pay attention carefully and usually to interpret these kinds of twin events together. So he tells us about these two events. The first he tells us about at the moment of Jesus' death, the temple curtain is torn in two from top to bottom. Now, just for a little context, Mark is describing um, the curtain that would have been inside the temple and it's the curtain in the innermost sanctuary that separated the sanctuary from the innermost uh, chamber within the temple sanctuary called the Holy of Holies. Um, the Jews, to do it, just backing up a little bit, the Jewish people, um, they know and affirm that God is present everywhere. But they also believe that God is most present in the temple. And among the temple spaces, God is the most, most present in this innermost sanctuary, uh, in, in innermost chamber within the temple sanctuary called the holiest, the holy of holies. This this innermost chamber is inside inside the temple, inside the temple sanctuary. Inside that is the holy of holies, and this space is separated by a curtain between the sanctuary and this innermost chamber. This space was considered so sacred that only the high priest was allowed to enter in to the Holy of Holies, and even him only one day each year. And so this innermost chamber, this is, we might think of it as, this is the nerve center of the temple. 
If the temple is where God is the most present, then this innermost chamber is the nerve center of the presence, the very presence of God, everything about the temple and everything it represents. And so what is Mark telling us here? That at the moment of Jesus' death, this curtain that separates this holiest of all places from the rest of the, is ripped into from top to bottom. What is Mark saying? Well, I think we could answer the question on two sides. We could answer it in the negative, and we could answer it in, in the positive. Stating it from the negative, this is a symbol of judgment against the temple. This is, in effect, this is the nullification of the temple. It is an act of divine judgment of the temple. This is to strip away the exclusive function of how the temple is thought to function. It is, it is gone. It is to do away with all of that. Positively, though, we could say that the tearing of this curtain means that the divine life is available to all. The life of God is not, in fact, stingily meted out by, through ritual and protocol. And if you jump through the hoops, right, and you cross all the, the T's and dot all the I's, then you get a little bit of divine life. No, that's not the reality of the divine life. In fact, the life of God is a gushing, flowing river freely available to all. This is what Jesus has been doing with his entire ministry. He has been the fountainhead of the river of God's life publicly, scandalously to all. That's why he's been feeding the hungry. That's why he's been healing the wounded. That's what he's done with his whole life is demonstrating the heart and life of God freely available to all. And in the moment of his death, Mark tells us, bam, God himself with this divine act demonstrates that Jesus had been right all along. This dramatic tearing of the, of the temple curtain is actually a reinforcement of everything about Jesus' life and ministry. So this is one of the two, mom one of the two uh, moments that Mark tells us uh, that happened at the moment of Jesus' death. And the second is this Roman soldier who sees all of this, says, importantly, I think, Mark says this centurion was standing facing him. He wasn't just present at the moment of Jesus' crucifixion. He was facing Jesus. And Mark tells us that this Roman centurion soldier, in seeing all this, says, truly, this man was God's son. Believe it or not, this Roman soldier is the first human in Mark's story to call Jesus God's son. It's remarkable, isn't it? And remember, this is coming from a Roman centurion. So get the picture. According, according to Roman theology, whenever you speak of God's son, you're speaking of Caesar. Um, in the Roman imagination, Caesar is the son of God. Caesar is the savior of the world. Caesar is the one who has brought peace on earth. Caesar is the one who's brought salvation. In the Roman imagination, Caesar is the revelation of God and of the will of God in the world, to the world, for the world. That's all vested in Caesar. And so for this Roman soldier to make this confession after standing and seeing and facing Jesus and seeing all of this, and in the moment of his death, for this Roman soldier to say, truly, this man was God's son. Well, this is gigantic. When he says that Jesus, who was executed by the empire, by the extension of Caesar, was in fact God's son, what this centurion is saying is that He's come to realize that Caesar is not God's son. He's saying what the empire has just committed is an act of total blindness. What the empire has just done is condemned itself by condemning 
God's son. This centurion sees this in this moment. And in this Roman soldier, the empire testifies against itself. In this Roman soldier, the empire is confessing its own blindness, its own bankruptcy, even in the midst of everyone else who is so confident in their validation and in their righteousness. This centurion sees it. We'll come back to that. Verse 40. There were also women looking on from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. These used to follow him and provided for him when he was in Galilee. And there were many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem. Um, I just want to say briefly here, and, and this theme will continue as we get to the study of, of Resurrection Sunday morning. Um, but let me just say that this is one instance of a new, uh, really a thread, a theme running through the Gospels and through the early church that both Jesus and the early Jesus movement practiced a strongly countercultural level of respect and inclusion toward women. Now, this is in contrast to both the Jewish culture and the wider Roman culture as the Jesus movement spilled out beyond uh, Jerusalem, um, which held and practiced a very low view toward women. But Jesus, in his ministry, he defied that cultural norm and practiced a very high value toward women and respect toward women and their active leadership roles in his in his ministry. And we also see evidence of this continuing in the life of the very early Jesus movement. Um, eventually, though, it appears that the Jesus movement was over time pressed back into the mold of its surrounding culture. And so much of the church throughout its history has reflected this subordinate role for women. Um, but what we see in Mark's story, and really in, in all the gospel stories, again and again and again, is that women play a prominent role in the story, and especially in including um, the reports of Good Friday and, as we're going to see, of Easter, these climactic moments of the Jesus story. Women play again and again a front and center role in the story of Good Friday and Easter, and again, even into the earliest days of the church. So we'll come back to that, to that theme. Let's continue on. Verse 42. When evening had come, and since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself waiting expectantly for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate wondered if he were already dead. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he had been dead for some time. When he learned from the centurion that he, Jesus, was dead, he granted the body to Joseph. Then Joseph bought a linen cloth and taking down the body, wrapped it in the linen cloth and laid it in a tomb that had been hewn out of the rock. He then rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, Joseph uh, saw where the body was laid. Now, here, as I mentioned before, we see a sharp departure from the normal practice of crucifixion. As I mentioned, history tells us that the victims of crucifixion are usually not taken down from their crosses. They're not usually given a proper burial. So what Joseph of Arimathea does here, as Mark says, it really is bold. So this is simultaneously, this, for, for Joseph of Arimathea, this is a very bold thing to do. And it's a beautiful act of love toward Jesus. And that is the story of Good Friday. I want to offer you, as we kind of conclude things, I want to offer you just a couple of reflections uh, on this. Um, <laughs> well, first of all, let me just say... Um, Speaking of the word reflection, um, 
we refer to this day as Good Friday in reflection upon it. That is, that is, when we look back through time at Good Friday, we're looking back through Easter. And so in light of Easter, we can call this Friday good. Um, and I said that to say that when you look at the day as it is and as it's just come to an end with Joseph of Arimathea, as beautiful as that act is, um, in the moment, it's difficult to know how it is that we could call Good Friday good. So the question is, as I said before, what story is Mark telling about Good Friday? And I want to give a, an attempt at answering that question. Here's a story that Mark is telling. Jesus was executed by the authorities because of his passion for the kingdom of God and because of his passion for the justice of God. And the authorities saw that Jesus' passion and his agenda was a, was a material threat to their system of coercive control over the people. Stated another way, Jesus was arrested by the religious authorities and he was handed over to the political authorities and then executed for the crime of being the king of the Jews. A crime, a title, a statement which is equally political and religious. Now, in order to unpack that take on the story that Mark is telling, I want to come back to those four words. Um, we know from, the, from history that Roman crucifixion was horrible and brutal. We know that. And that's why I think it's worth pointing out how little attention Mark gives explicitly to the moment of crucifixion and how little attention Mark gives to the brutality of crucifixion. Now, granted, this may well be because Mark knows that his audience is all too familiar with how brutal crucifixion is. That may well be true. But remember that later reflection upon the meaning of Jesus' death has made it seem, to many at least, has made it seem like it is the suffering of Jesus that specifically makes his death meaningful as a means of salvation. In other words, once you decide that the meaning of Jesus' death is that God needed an innocent person to suffer so that God could then forgive the sins of others who place their faith in Jesus, well, at that point, you will naturally emphasize the suffering of Jesus. Why? Because it is his suffering, and precisely his suffering, that saves the rest of us. That's what later theological reflection has concluded. And I just want to say that this analysis would suggest that maybe Mark got it wrong. Because Mark doesn't devote much time or attention or even words or syllables to the brutality of the suffering. This is not to minimize the suffering, but it's simply to say that for Mark, it wasn't important to observe all that. But according to the later reflection on the meaning of the crucifixion, maybe Mark should have devoted more words to the suffering. Maybe he should have spelled it all out in graphic detail like Mel Gibson did for us in his film, The Passion of the Christ. But he didn't. Mark doesn't do that. Mark only uses four words to describe the actual event of crucifixion. And moreover, Mark is remarkably brief in all of his references to the explicit suffering of Jesus. And so, if not that, then what? If, if Mark is not actively drawing our attention to the physical suffering of Jesus, and we can agree that Mark is a spirit-inspired teller of this story, he is fully equipped to bring to us theologically what it is we need to see in this event. And what he leads us to is not the brutality of the suffering, but what he leads us to is something else. Then what? What is it that he is leading us to? 
in order to um, uh, uh, offer us the rich theological meaning of Good Friday. So with that question, I want to ask you to join me in an experiment. I want to invite you to go back. Let's go back to that Friday morning on Golgotha, just outside Jerusalem. Let's go back to 9.30 that morning. Mark tells us that Jesus was crucified at 9 a.m. And I want you to ask yourself a question and try not to answer too quickly. I want you to look up onto that crucified man and ask yourself a question. What do I see? Try not to answer too quickly. Keep looking. It's now 10 a.m. and we're still looking. It's 11 a.m. It's now noon. He's been there three hours. It's now 1 p.m., 2 p.m., 3 p.m., and Jesus breathes his last. It's now 4 p.m. His lifeless body has been suspended there for one hour now. Five, six p.m. The sun is beginning to set. Joseph of Arimathea takes action and gets permission to take down the body of Jesus. What do you see? What have you seen? Do you see victory or do you see defeat? Do you see a loser or do you see a winner? Do you see weakness or do you see strength? Do you see here justice or do you see a tragic miscarriage of justice? Do you see the validation of the powers that be and that shaped society or do you see the condemnation of the powers that be and shape society do you see the validation of jesus and his dream and passion for the kingdom of god to come on earth as it is in heaven or do you see proof positive that this world is what it is and nothing is going to change it Do you see salvation or do you see ruin? Do you see the kingdom of God breaking in to this world? Or do you see the kingdoms of this world winning yet another victory? As you look upon this crucified man, do you see killing? Or do you see dying? Because you see, this is what Mark is telling us. In the suffering and humiliated Jesus, Rome saw its own power and glory and strength. His suffering means that the gods are once again demonstrating that their favor rests upon Caesar and upon the Roman Empire. That's what they saw. Caesar has brought salvation into this world through killing, and Caesar is now saving Jerusalem through killing Jesus. That's what Rome saw. The religious leaders, they saw their own justification. His suffering means that they were right all along, and Jesus was wrong. His suffering means that God is on their side. His suffering is their validation. The crowd, they saw a loser whose dreams about the coming of the kingdom of God turn out to have always been empty dreams. They saw a humiliated loser who knows nothing 
about how to bring salvation to the world. This man never knew anything about how to bring about the kingdom of God. That's what they saw. So what's real? What's truth? Well, Mark has already told us what's real. He's already told us what's true. He's already told us what's true about this moment. And it goes back to those two megaphone events that occur right at the moment of Jesus' death. The tearing of the temple curtain and the confession of the Roman centurion soldier. The religious leaders in this moment, what they see is their own self-justification. But this is actually, Mark says, their own self-condemnation. Pilate in Rome, in the suffering and humiliated Jesus, they see their own validation, glory, and strength. But in that Roman soldier, Rome, in fact, confesses its own emptiness, blindness, and self-condemnation. The crowd sees proof positive that the only way they'll ever be saved is for somebody who will fight back against these tyrants. But according to Mark, no. Actually, this is how salvation comes. It comes by dying. In short, what Mark tells us is that God is not on the side of the killing. God is the one doing the suffering. God is the one who's crucified. And remember, all throughout Mark's story, again and again, we've studied this over the weeks, Jesus has said again and again, not only that he must suffer, but again and again, he's invited his followers to take up their cross and follow him. So who's right? Both the religious leaders and Rome insist that salvation comes through killing. They, the religious leaders, their position, their status quo has been saved through the killing of Jesus. And Rome, well, Caesar here is doing what Caesar always does to bring salvation to the world, killing. But Jesus testifies differently. Jesus testifies, no, you've got it wrong. Salvation comes through dying. So who's right? Well, let's put the question to the test. Let's look at what history says about the matter. Who's right? Is Caesar right? Are the temple authorities right? Does salvation come through killing? Or does salvation come through dying? And I think you know where that question goes. If you fast forward through time, everybody, in just 30 years after this moment, the temple and its entire construct will be wiped away. When violent uh, revolt against Rome erupts in Jerusalem, just a few years later, 70 AD, the armies of Caesar overtake Jerusalem, destroy the temple. Not only was the building itself destroyed, but arguably an entire culture was wiped out. From that moment, about two centuries forward, the Roman emperor himself will bow the knee and confess that Jesus is Lord in Emperor Constantine. You fast forward from that day to this day, everybody. Millions of people all over the world, roughly one-third of the earth's population, confess that Jesus is Lord. He's the author of salvation. Meanwhile, the Roman Empire, it's long gone, long forgotten, and little Caesar's is nothing but a pizza joint. So who's right? History says that Jesus is right. Despite all of our expectations, despite all of our insistences, that salvation, it has to come through power. It has to come through something top down. It has to come through something like coercion. It has to come through something like violence. And yet, 
this man 2,000 years ago demonstrates salvation doesn't come through killing. It comes through dying. In his case, literally. And in the case of thousands more martyrs, literally. But in all cases, symbolically, laying down our lives for the sake of others. That's how the kingdom comes. And so I ask you again, as you look, as you look up at this suffering and humiliated man, what do you see? And I want to say that if you see that salvation comes through killing, then we need to start all over, take it from the very beginning. But if you see that salvation comes by dying, then you are not far from the kingdom. Amen. Father, we love you.